Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Stephen Leifman is the county judge in the 11th Judicial Circuit Court in the state of Florida. He gave these remarks in January 2015 in West Palm Beach, Florida. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really do appreciate the opportunity. Since I was in Chicago the day before last, this is a much, much better place. I will tell you that when I became a judge, I had absolutely no idea I was actually becoming the gatekeeper to the largest psychiatric facility in Florida, and sadly, that's the Miami-Dade County Jail. People in the United States are 10 times more likely, those that have mental illnesses, to be in jail than any state hospital. It's a really horrible statistic. And in Florida, we have a 30 time more likelihood with mental illness to be in jail than any psychiatric facility. It's just, it's, it's criminal right off the bat. What I want to do is before I get into my formal remarks, I'm going to show you a short video that was produced by my local CBS4 affiliate that really lays out why we need to do this. The wonderful room of people here. In some ways, you're the first responders like the police because your clients Many of them have these issues. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about ways in which you can maybe help us, help your community, put more of a sane system of care together so that we really can make jail the last resort for people with mental illness. The Miami Dade Jail, largest psychiatric facility in the state of Florida. A pretty sobering look at our mental health system. Probably something many of you see, unfortunately, on a regular basis as well. But things do change. Four weeks ago, we shut down that floor, and we shut down the other horrible mental health floors, and we're almost finished shutting down those mental health floors. And the county was forced through us and through a federal lawsuit. The video went viral, and the Justice Department fortunately sued us, and it strengthened our hand to get done what we needed to get done, and they built a much more appropriate, humane setting for people with mental illnesses in our system. But my journey into the mental health world actually began one morning when I was getting ready to go on the bench, and I was approached by the assistant public defender and the assistant state attorney, and they asked me if I would speak to a couple whose son was in jail on a case I was about to hear. At the time I was handling a misdemeanor jail division, basically find three kinds of people in that division. Those that have attached felonies who are not allowed out, those that are too poor to bond out, and those with mental illnesses that just don't know how to get out. So they came to me and they said, Judge, um, there's a guy in here. You really need to speak to his parents. It's just an unbelievable story. I'm like, sure, no problem. And you have to understand, this was in 2000. Up until that point, judges had absolutely no training on how to deal with mental health. Maybe we were told how to order an evaluation, but most of us didn't even know what to do with that. There was no formal training by the court or any of our judicial education programs. So a lovely couple came to my chambers, very sophisticated and just horribly horribly upset. The mom was crying, the dad was shaking to beg me to get their son help. They told me that their son was a brilliant man. He had a late onset of schizophrenia. He had gone to Harvard and now he was homeless and recycling through the Miami-Dade jail and they just didn't know what to do anymore. Being relatively new at the time and I made the mistake of promising them that I could get their son help because I was under the same false impression I assumed if you were in psychiatric distress and you got arrested, we would have the system to take you to. So as I was getting ready to go back into the courtroom, the mom stopped me and she said, Judge, there's one more thing I want to tell you about my son. Not only is he brilliant, but respectfully, he probably knows the system better than you do because, you see, my son is the former head of psychiatry at Jackson Memorial Hospital. 
I went into the courtroom and I called his case and he stood. I said, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? He said, no, Your Honor. And I will tell you, and I don't mean to be too sarcastic, but he was more respectful than the lawyers. He was brilliant. He was articulate. He was coherent. And I'm thinking, my God, is this, this isn't adding up. Except when you looked at him, he looked like a homeless guy who hadn't bathed, but he was making perfect sense. And he was on some ridiculous charge, something like one of our county ordinances. You probably don't even have it, hopefully, possession of a dairy cart, which is often used by the police to pick up homeless people because homeless people often use those carts to keep their worldly items. He says, look, Judge, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't have any kind of mental health. I've been here probably longer than you can even sentence me. And he was right. And he said, just you release me. You can even put me on a conditional release. I'll get evaluated. But this is ridiculous. He's like, you're holding up a bed for me when you could have someone that's really dangerous in here. I said, well, can I just ask you one, one more question? Your Honor, anyway, you really don't have a mental illness, but you're insisting you don't. Why would a Harvard-educated doc be in jail, homeless, and recycling through the criminal justice system? It's taken several years to figure out why what happened next happened. And I'll tell you in a moment. But all of a sudden, he got a look on his face that someone must have right before they think they're going to die. He looked like a frightened, wounded animal. And he started screaming at the top of his lungs. And he started yelling, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor. You have to have that couple move. You have to have that couple move. You have to have that couple move. Aren't those your parents? No, 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 no. My real parents, my real parents, my real parents, my real parents. They died in the Holocaust. I died in the Holocaust. I died in the Holocaust. From the CIA, CIA, CIA. They came to kill me, kill me, kill me, kill me. Only thing you could hear was his mother crying. We were all done. I did the only thing that I was taught. Well, someone act stranger, bizarre, order a psychological evaluation. I frankly had no idea what was going to happen next. I ordered the first evaluation. He stayed in an extra two weeks on possession of a dairy cart. The evaluation came back and it said he needs to be hospitalized immediately. I'm thinking this is great. You know, I'm going to be the hero. We're going to live happily ever after. I had to order two more to get a stipulation. I ordered two more. He's in another two, three weeks. The evaluation's come back. He, and he needs to be hospitalized. So, and I'm about to order him into involuntary hospitalization. And all of a sudden I look down and I notice that the assistant public defender has a gun on her face. And we all know that the grin is a bad thing. And she then utters those words that this room will appreciate much more than most of my audience do. She said, your honor and all due respect. And she whips out a Florida State v. Anru that happened a little south of your border in Broward that basically says that county court judges have absolutely no authority or jurisdiction to involuntarily hospitalize anybody. No way around it because it was a specific jurisdictional issue. Supreme Court goes on at the end of the opinion and basically says we know this causes some problems and we strongly urge the legislature to take this issue up. The case came out at the end of 99. Is there anyone here that thinks the Florida legislature taking it up yet? I released them back to the community, putting the community at risk, probably putting my job at risk, but I followed the law. And I will tell you, we do not become judges to be part of that kind of problem. And I was devastated. I didn't fulfill promise to his parents. And I had no idea what was going to happen. And I left the bench and I got on the phone and I started making phone calls because I was never going to do that again. And I learned three very, very valuable lessons. First lesson I learned is that Miami-Dade County truly has a very serious mental health crisis. As it turns out, we have the largest percentage of people with mental illnesses of any urban area in the United States. It's almost three times the national average. That equates to... 9.1% of my general population, which is 180,000 adults, 
Now, when I use the term mental illness, I'm not talking about sociopaths. I'm talking about people that have the SMI class, serious mental illnesses. This is generally major depression, schizophrenia, is really more of a symptom than a disorder, and bipolar disorder. And because Florida is now 50th per capita in mental health funding, we went from 49th to 50th last year, we have the largest percentage of people with mental illnesses in the jails. And it is a horrible, horrible crisis. Because the reality is, is that mental illness is a disease you can recover from. In fact, recovery rates for people with mental illnesses are better than people with diabetes and heart disease. And people with mental illnesses are no more likely to be violent than the rest of the general population. In fact, on medication, they're much less likely to be violent than the general population. And so many of the people that we have locked up because we did not have an alternative really could do quite well in the community if we provided them with the right level of treatment. I also learned that day that almost 35% of our jail population is on psychotropic medication. Three and a half of those floors, at least until last month, were occupying people with mental illnesses. We were spending $218,000 a day, that's $80 million a year, to warehouse people in conditions you wouldn't let your dog stay in. We had done a lousy job training law enforcement on how to handle these cases. Since 1999, we had 21 people, 21 people die during an encounter with a police officer because the police weren't trained on how to handle these cases. That was the first lesson. The second lesson I learned is this was not just a Miami-Dade problem, but it turned out to be a state and national problem as well. Former Surgeon General David Satcher called mental illness the silent epidemic of our time. But if you work in this field like all of us do, and you're in criminal justice, there's absolutely nothing silent about this epidemic. And the third lesson, maybe the most difficult lesson, is that our community mental health system was developed at a time when most people were still in psychiatric hospitals. It is horribly fragmented, it is almost impossible to access, does not reflect current science, medicine, and breakfast practices. And as a result, people bypass that system and end up in our system. I was going to read for a moment from an article, but I don't want to waste the time on it. But I'm just going to read you a couple lines and then tell you what it's from. Because the past few years, I've seen an increasing amount of interest manifested in mental health and psychiatry. It says that the legal, the existing legal procedure treats a person with mental illness as a criminal instead of an ill person. Booking a person with psychiatric issues at a police station is unnecessarily, unnecessary and undesirable. It goes on that we should eliminate the inefficiency and duplication in mental health. It goes on and talks about the importance of training judges and lawyers and clergy and other people in the community. And these are just some of the amazing comments and recommendations that were published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in January of 1939. We recognize how horrible the situation is. And this is one area in civil rights in this country we have actually gone backwards on. In some ways, people with mental illnesses are much worse off today than they were just 75 years ago. It's a little history so I can weave in some legal issues so you can get your CLE credit. But when the country was first founded, we didn't know what to do with people with mental illnesses. So what would happen is loved ones would literally take their family member and they would drop them off at a jail. And the jails were the original holding places for people with mental illnesses. About 1830, Dorothea Dix, who was a Quaker from Massachusetts and Boston, and she came across these 14 men who were literally segregated from the jail in the dead of winter, and they were 
freezing to death in the jail. And so she went to see the jailer and she's like, excuse me, you know, who are these men and why are you treating them this way? And this is so ironic. He says to her, look, lady, they're just a bunch of lunatics. They didn't commit any crimes. I'm not getting paid, told them, I don't know what you want me to do. This one woman, this one person was so outraged at what she saw. She helped adopt a program that had started in France called Moral Treatment. And the idea was we should treat this population because it was immoral what we were doing. So she convinces the Massachusetts legislature to create and open the first asylum because asylums were good back then. And she said, look, none of these facilities should have more than 150 beds because they don't really know how to treat them. But if we treat them better and we give them a better environment, they'll have a better life. And she was right because part of this just plays such a big role in someone's mental illness. And so... Massachusetts started into these asylums, and the rest of the country picks up on this, but God bless the state. You know, they're not going to waste a penny if they don't have to waste a penny. So they said, you know, we can't have a bunch of 150-bed facilities. And they started to consolidate. And they built these big, massive facilities, like the one in Georgia, Milledgeville had 10,000 patients, and the one in Ohio had like 15,000 patients. And these hospitals became nothing less than human experimentation facilities, houses apart. In fact, the first medication or treatment that they gave this population, believe it or not, was insulin shock therapy. Why? They went around, they did some rudimentary testing, and they found that some of this population, a lot of the population, had slightly elevated blood sugar levels, that they just must be diabetics, and it was the diabetes causing their insanity, and they could just shock them back with insulin and turn them back normal. Well, of course, that failed. People got sick. People died. But they said, you know what? We're on to something. So they came up with electric shock therapy machines and tried to shock you back into sanity. Well, we all know how that was. And when that failed, they just decided to cut a little piece of the brain out and do what we call lobotomy. Believe it or not, they did that until the late 1970s. Well, around 1960s, things started to change. And President Kennedy, who was all too aware of this problem, because a lot of people don't know this, but his sister Rose had been lobotomized. She had mental health issues. Not only was she lobotomized, it was a bot lobotomy, and she was really, really damaged. He passed the first of its kind National Community Mental Health Act. And the idea was to take people from these horrible asylums and return them to the community. The first medication had come out, there was some real promise, they thought, and they just knew they didn't have to treat this population. He passed a $3 billion authorizing bill, and even in today's time would be pretty good, but tragically and sadly, did his assassination and the escalation of the Vietnam War, not one penny of the $3 billion actually got appropriated. And at the same time, a whole slew of lawsuits came out. Remember, Geraldo Rivera came out with this big expose. One flew over the cuckoo's nest had come out. And people were really getting outraged at the treatment that this population was suffering in these facilities. So the first case gets filed in the state of Alabama. And it's a fascinating, fascinating case. Wyatt V. Stuckney. And it's fascinating because the case wasn't filed because of the mistreatment of the population. The case actually got filed by the doctors because Alabama had been using a cigarette pack to pay for the hospital. And they were convinced, because the legislature was cutting it, that they would lose their jobs. So they decided they would file this lawsuit and they would save their jobs. The case ends up in front of one of the best federal jurists ever on the bench, Judge Johnson. 
Now you have to understand, Judge Johnson is the same judge that freed Martin Luther King from the Birmingham jail. He was a federal judge, he was tough as nails, and he didn't screw around with Judge Johnson. The case comes in front of the Judge Johnson, he takes one look at it, and he says to the doc, I can't tell Alabama who to fire and hire, so that part of your pleading is dismissed. However, he says, he reaches it and he grabs jurisdiction of this case, because clearly Judge Johnson's looking for one of these cases. And he issues with some of the finest adjectives you will ever see written by a federal judge or their clerk in an opinion that just, <laughs> that just describe this facility in ways that you can smell it. It's so despicable. And he goes on, he says, this is the most despicable facility in the United States. He says to Alabama, look, you cannot treat human beings this way. And what the precedent of the case, which is so interesting, is that up until that point, the jails were responsible for providing adequate health care. But a civil setting, there was no such standard. So he imposes the, basically the same standard in a civil hospital setting. And he lists 80 specific points that he tells Alabama that they have to meet or he's shutting them down. And I think, and I'm projecting here, that Judge Johnson thinks he just threatens Alabama, he's going to put these people out on the street in Alabama, that they're going to come up with the money and fix the hospital. Now, it really isn't a lot of treatment in 1963. Most of his recommendations are really based around physical plant, which is an expensive way to fix the problem. But he even goes as far to tell them how hot the water and the dishwasher needed to be because they weren't cleaning people's utensils and they were getting physically sick in this hellhole. Alabama's credit, they actually start to come up with a lot of money. And for a short period, Alabama has like one of the best mental health systems in the country. They, of course, appeal Judge Johnson because what happens is they don't get to all 80. And Judge Johnson told him, you could do 79, not good enough. I need all 80 or I'm shutting it down. So they don't get it done. He threatens to shut them down and they appeal. Case goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And for the most part, it is affirmed. And there is a shockwave in this country because now, if you have a state hospital, which everybody does, you have to raise the standard. And I'm going to cost a couple million dollars. We're talking billions of dollars in improvements nationwide. The states have two choices. They can spend all the money or they can shut them down and provide community treatment. Now, what do you think they decided to do? Of course because they weren't going to spend the money. At that time in the country's history, a mere 5,000 people with mental illnesses in jails and prisons, 1955, 1960. There were 560,000 people in state hospitals at that time. Anybody have any idea how many civil hospital beds are left in this country? Take a guess. Any guesses? Okay. There's less than 40,000 civil beds left in the United States. Probably closer to about 32,000. Well, but if we didn't shut it down and our population grow as it did to this point, we would have 1.5 million people in state hospital beds around the country. We have less than 40,000 beds. Anybody want to take a wild guess? Last year, how many people with mental illnesses were arrested in the United States? 1.5 million. On any given day, to be precise, 1.5 million people in 2 million events because a lot of them, unfortunately, get arrested multiple times. On any given day in the United States today, we have about 500,000 people with serious mental illnesses in jail and prison, and another 850,000 
on some type of community control or probation. It is horribly sad and horribly ironic that number one is we never deinstitutionalized. What we in fact did is we transferred responsibility of this problem from those really horrible, crappy asylums to the really crappy, horrible jails. Worse is once you end up in our lovely system and you get a criminal record, now not only suffering the stigma of having a mental illness, now you are a criminal with mental illness who no longer is eligible for housing, no longer eligible for employment, often loses a driver's license because now in the great state of Florida, it doesn't even matter on a driving case anymore. If you don't pay your court fees, you all know this, right? If you don't pay court fees on any criminal case, they suspend your driver's license. And how many of our clients or your clients with these issues are even capable of paying their court costs? So we have really stripped them of any opportunity for recovery. And maybe the second and sadder irony is that 200 years have now passed and we are treating people with mental illnesses worse today than we did then. And we have really failed people with mental illnesses miserably. And so we've seen homelessness increase, we've seen police injuries increase, we've seen police shootings of people with mental illnesses increase, we've wasted huge critical, critical dollars. And basically we've made mental illness a crime in this country. In fact, in Florida, our police actually initiate more involuntary examinations under the Baker Act and the total number of arrests for robbery, burglary, and grand theft auto combined. The police handle over 100,000 Baker Acts a year. It is such a waste of resources, and unfortunately, when they're not trained, often those cases can end up as a battery on law enforcement. Or, and if this isn't disturbing enough, just think about the economic impact. So we wanted to try to figure out who are the highest utilizers of criminal justice and mental health services in my community could actually come get better services and improve our outcome. So Florida Mental Health Institute, which is at the University of South Florida in Tampa, which I still can't figure out why you have a University of South Florida in Tampa. Can educate me on that one day? They're an amazing institute. And they have one of the only blended data sets in the United States. They can tell a community who the highest utilizers of criminal justice and mental health services. So they have access to FDLE records, all the Baker Act records, Medicaid and Medicare records. We literally sent them thousands of names, people that we knew had mental illnesses that had come through our system that had been arrested over a five-year period. Finally, get a letter, and there's one piece of paper on it in there. And there's 97 names on this one piece of paper. Primarily men, primarily diagnosed with schizophrenia, and primarily homeless, who over a five-year period were arrested 2,200 times, they spent 27,000 days in that horrible jail, 13,000 days at either a crisis unit, emergency room, or psychiatric facility, and cost taxpayers almost $13 million. And we got absolutely nothing for it. We would have better off sending them to Harvard because at least they might have had a shot at an education. It is the obscenity of our system. And I guarantee whether you're in Palm Beach, Gainesville, Pensacola, Miami, we all have 97. And they are killing the deep end systems and we are killing them and their families. The next area which is absolutely ludicrous is our forensic competency system. There's only four states in the United States that do more than 400 competency referrals to the state hospital a year. And there's only one that does more than 1,500 a year, which is Florida. Florida now spends 
one-third of all of its adult mental health dollars, that's between $200 and $210 million a year, to restore competency to 2,500 people a year. Think about it. One-third of all of our money. We're already 50th, and it's part of the reason because the state will increase the other side. And what they've done is they've taken... It's an entitlement program. It's constitutionally mandated that you have to have a fair trial. So what the state has done is they've sucked the money from the community side to pay for this entitlement side, creating that balloon effect and actually making the problem worse. So there's less community services, more difficult to access, and more people going into the forensic side. It's grown over the last 10 years by some ridiculous number of about 170%, growing so fast that if it looks like it'll double, which it probably will, it'll be four to $500 million, which is almost half of our public mental health budget. Now, consider this. We have between 150 and 160,000 people a year in Florida who at the time of their arrest need acute mental health care treatment. But we're now spending one-third of all the money to restore competency. And to make matters worse, what happens to those 2,500 people? It's not like they've all committed these heinous offenses and they need to go to prison. So for 70%, 70% of that $210 million, they either have the charges dropped because many of their offenses are involving other homeless people who never show up to court, so there's no witness, or they get credit time server probation and they walk out the front door of the courthouse without any access to mental health care treatment for a whopping $200 million dollars. You know, it actually meets the definition of insanity, where we keep doing the same thing again and again, and we expect a different outcome. It is absurd. But even worse is in Florida's prison. The fastest growing subpopulation, and that's how we refer to them, are people with mental illnesses in the prison system. And so while the general population in Florida over the last 12 years or so has grown by 56%, the mental health population has grown by 153%. We went from about 7,000 inmates to today 17,000 inmates. Most of them are only there in prison because they've accumulated points. The average stay in Florida's prison for someone with a mental illness is only two and a half to four years. They're not committing heinous offenses. They're just pointing up. It's growing so fast that Florida is now looking at how to build 10 new prisons just for people with mental illness for the projected growth, which we expect to be at about 35,000 people with mental illness in the next 10 years. Well, the cost to build and operate 10 new prisons just for people with mental illness is almost $2.5 billion so that we can warehouse them, we can come back to the same inadequate community system that got them there to begin with. Plus, now they have a real chance of being at that great institution of higher learning called prison where they're going to hang out with some real criminals and they're going to learn some wonderful, wonderful new behavior. There's really something wrong with our society and ours if we're willing to spend more money to incarcerate people that are ill than to treat them. It has to break at some point. How do we fix it? And that's the good news. It is really fixable. The first national meeting on this issue was held in Miami. Went to this meeting and it was just like, oh my God, I'd gone to heaven. I was around a bunch of people that understood this issue. They were talking my language. It made perfect sense to me because you see, my age totally tracks the institutionalization. When I was the 
chief of the county court for the public defender's office, we had just started to see an increase in people with mental illnesses in our system. My first year, there was like nobody. And the next year, all of a sudden, we had this plethora of clients. They had closed the hospital probably to be close to it. And so when I was a PD, I'll never forget this quite naively. I sent out this letter to all the stakeholders in my community. And I'm like, we're having this huge increase in the number of people with mental illnesses. I'd like to have a little meeting. And I sent it to the chief judge of the circuit and to the, the, the state attorney and the police. And we don't have a sheriff. We call him director. And so not only did nobody come to my meeting, they didn't even have the decency to, say, to tell me they weren't coming. I literally showed up to this meeting and there was no one there. So I'm a patient man. And so a couple years later, or a year or two later, to my shock and awe, I was appointed to the bench. And then this horrible case happened. And I took this same letter, put it on my brand new beautiful stationery with that big fat gold seal. And they were there early. And so I convinced this organization to host the summit and give us a grant. And they sent three experts in. We had been talking for years that we had a problem on Miami. But as soon as these experts came in and told us we had a problem, everyone was like, yeah, we got a problem. What we did is we literally mapped out on paper, and it was a two-day meeting. Nobody was allowed to leave until we figured this thing out. And we mapped out how our community mental health system intersected with our criminal justice. And guess what? We didn't. It was literally embarrassingly dysfunctional. And it was just typical. So someone got arrested on a misdemeanor. We wrote all these, all these expensive avowals. We'd find them incompetent and then release them. It was just, we were part of the problem. And we brought one expert in from Seattle. So, you know, he really was an expert. He was as far from Miami as I could go, except Alaska, I guess. He told us about something they did in Seattle. They took a room full of people like you and the sheriff and the police chief and the chief judge. And they took them to a local park. And they took their wallets, their shoes, their purses, and any ID. And they said, you know, you have mental illness. Tomorrow morning, you need to be at court at 9 o'clock. 10.30, you need to go see your probation. At noon, you need to see your psychiatrist. And at 2 o'clock, you need to pick up your medication. And if you just hear that story, what you realize so clearly is we designed a system that works 9 to 5 for people that are well. And even if you're well, it's not easy to access. Trust me. We didn't create a system for people that were ill. We looked around this room after we spent a half day mapping out this problem, and it was amazing because what we realized is that it wasn't nefarious. This isn't one person or one party or anything like that creating this. In fact, some were created with goodwill. This didn't work. But that we were all so busy. The lawyers were lawyering, the prosecutor prosecuting, the judges judging, the police policing. And no one was looking out for that one serious mental illness that was literally accessing everybody's services in that one room again and again and again. We met for a few weeks after that. We put together very clear structural changes in our system that we all could agree with. And I literally had a signing ceremony in my courtroom because I knew if I didn't make everybody sign a document, everybody's name on the document, that we could have something institutionally changed in my community. We came up with this wonderful goal that reads, Diversion and Linkage to Comprehensive Care Makes Jail the Last Resort. And we created this thing we call the 11th Judicial Circuit Criminal Mental Health Project. I even gave tours of our jail, this place, to all my county commissioners. I will tell you, when they saw the conditions, they almost passed out. And when I told them they were spending $80 million, they did. There is a huge disconnect. See, they don't go to these places. They don't see what you see. 
And that's why things get messed up. So they don't really think they exist. And so they got behind us. We needed a pre-arrest diversion program, and we needed a post-arrest diversion program. And our pre-arrest is CIT. And one thing Florida does have, and we're very lucky, I go all over the country talking about these issues. Most people don't know where to send this population. They'll send them to an emergency room, which is a real problem because the ERs don't want them. We're one of the only states in the country that have these. Now, because of our prevalence, we have like six. So we started kind of slow. I remember going to meet with the director of the Miami-Dade Police Department right out and he said, Judge, I appreciate you coming in. I did some analysis. Last year, we only had three mental health calls. And so I appreciate you coming in, but we don't need this. But okay, thank you. And he then ran for mayor and won. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is never going to get fixed. Right as he got elected. We use our grand juries in Dade County. I don't know if you use them the same up here. To look at major social issues. So about a year before he gets elected, they were doing a program on the criminalization of mental illness. We walked them through on the changes we wanted. They came out literally in indictment of my police departments for not doing CIT. And to the mayor's credit, we now have all 36 police agencies trained. I have 4,400 police officers trained in CIT. And I will tell you, and I did not believe this could happen, but to see the cultural shift among our law enforcement is almost unbelievable. Almost unbelievable. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But last year, well, two big agencies, the city of Miami and Miami-Dade County, did 10,626 mental health calls. In fact, Miami-Dade, the one that said they only did three, they did 5,600 calls in 2013. Anyway, the two agencies combined, because we keep really good data, 10,626,000 calls and only nine arrests. We went from shooting and killing one person with mental illness every month, a year. We've had maybe three or four in eight years. Our jail audit plummeted last year from its high of 7,800 to 4,400. We closed one of our jails last year. When you close a jail, my county now saves $12 million a year, which easily made it possible for me to get dollars from them to run the project. It is remarkable. And the police have been amazing. We have a luncheon every year. We give a CIT officer of the year because I think we don't always appreciate, it's not true for all of them, but for many of them, they really go into the field to help people. And it's a rough, nasty, jaded field on so many levels. And they end up getting very isolated. So they get this bunker mentality that the world's against them. But when you give them the opportunity to do the right thing, I can't tell you. I go to the county, I call my CIT, I need some money. 200 of them will show up in uniform right behind me. And the thing we didn't appreciate is most officers suffer from secondary trauma. Trauma is a big deal. People get mental illnesses a couple ways. There is a genetic path, or there's not a gene. The body has an amazing Amazing capacity. We have something called a pituitary gland. What the hell does that have to do with law? Everything. Your pituitary gland protects you. So when you see something bad, cortisol, right into the brain. So if you walk out in the street and you see a bus coming, you're going to get a shot of cortisol until you get the hell out of the, out of the street. If you can't get out of the street, cortisol doesn't stop running. So if you're in war or you live in a war zone, or you're sexually assaulted, the cortisone keeps firing. Cortisone's a really strong drug. It literally breaks the brain and creates disorder. 
So let me tell you this statistic. 92% of all the women in prison in the United States with mental illness are sexually abused. And usually it's familiar. So it's not one time event. The stepfather, the boyfriend, or whatever it is, and that cortisone is just destroying that kid. And that's why when you represent, if anyone does juvenile and has those girls and they are angrier and meaner than anyone you've ever seen, they are really dead. And then we compound it. So then the school, they act out in school, of course, and schools are embracing them because they are raped. They're pissed at them because they're disrupting the other 30 kids in class. Then she gets re-victimized. Eventually, he's going to run away, get to the street. She's going to turn to drugs to start to deal with the nightmare she's still having. And then, of course, what she's going to do is come a prostitute because she has to pay for the drugs. We get them in our system. We're really angry at them because they're public health nuisances. The reality is is they were raped at six and seven and eight. It's horrible. It is horrible what we've done. Seventy-five percent of men have serious trauma those with mental illnesses in our system. And it's those kids that are living in war zones that are seeing things that none of us would see in a lifetime that they see on a daily basis. And it's the same thing vets have coming back. Overdose with cortisone, their brain is broken, and it's a problem. We also realized we couldn't stop every arrest. Sometimes people aren't exhibiting. Sometimes people do things that have to be arrested for. And so we set up three post-arrest divisions. The first post-arrest that I was able to get my state to go along with was a partial misdemeanor diversion back in 2000-2001. There was such great results. She allowed us to expand it to all misdemeanors. Now, and we changed our arrest affidavit. We have a box. It's PMHD on our A form. If the officer has to make an arrest and they think the person has mental illness, they check the box. So it's the first indicator to the jail. We changed the jail screening tool so that they could identify more people appropriately. If you get anybody in Dade County, you get arrested on any misdemeanor, you're exhibiting serious signs of mental illness, generally within 24 to 48 hours, we can get you out of jail, we divert you to a crisis stabilization unit, and because 72 hours under the Baker Act does not apply when there is a criminal hold, I set the case for two weeks down, really let the person to get treated. And what we've done is I've hired seven peer specialists. Three or four of them are graduates of this program that were in jail, they're extraordinarily sick, and are now in full recovery. And they go out and meet with this person, and they convince the person that they should treatment, and they can identify with the person better than any of us can, and they really get folks to listen. 80% of the people we divert agree to go into the program. Even better, and God bless my state attorney, they agree to drop the charges. Usually 30 to 90 days. And has to stay in the program up to a year. While they're in, and they never get rebooked. Literally picked up and brought back into the courtroom so there's not a rebooking. We have a program called SOAR, which expedites federal benefits. Most recidivism occurs in the first 25 days. So you have to have housing, case management. Everything has to be set up for them. One of my great county commissioners just got the county to give us a car. Because our peer specialists were slipping them around in public transportation. But we take care of all their needs. The recidivism rate for our misdemeanor population dropped so well and allowed us to expand it to felony cases. So any nonviolent felony is now also eligible for a diversion. Two to four weeks to get the person out. And they have to agree to stay for a year in the program. And in most cases, the state attorney drops charges on those as well. Really nice. We criminalize it to help people get employed. We've been doing a bunch of other things. We developed a really good staff. We now train for 911 call takers. We have this great computer linkage system we're setting up. I'm going to talk to you about that and more. And one thing Dade County has that nobody has, they dedicate a tax for homelessness. 
is a godsend. We've reduced our homelessness in Dade County between 8,000 to about 800 right now. And those that are generally left on the state are basically with mental illness and substance use issues. We were able to convince the state of Florida. We have uh, the old forensic hospital about a mile from our courthouse, shuttered for several years now. And it's a fabulous building, 180,000 square feet, huge. Got the state leased the building to the county for a dollar a year for 99 years. Got the taxpayers of Dade to pass a $22 million bond issue for us. And we are now in the process of renovating the facility, have a courtroom. We're talking about maybe doing our bond hearings in the building. And we can divert them right there because there'll be a crisis unit. There'll be a short-term residential facility. There's going to be a day activity run by people with mental illnesses. There's going to be a culinary supportive employment program. And employment is so critical that the brain has an amazing capacity to re-educate itself. It's dialectic therapy, we call it. By working, it actually stimulates your neurons. Well, everybody needs a reason to get up. And if you don't, they stay down. The data, based on another system where our best beta test sites for right now, showing us that the population that we're getting into an employment program has a significantly less chance of arrest or rehospitalization. We're going to put a trauma service treatment there, a primary health clinic in there as well, so we can do both mental health, primary health. And the idea will be, instead of just drop-kicking people who are sick back to the street through our system, we can gently land them back into the community in recovery and give them a real chance. We are now a beta test site working with this huge Japanese pharmaceutical company and IBM to see if predictive analytics could be used in behavioral health. We've already basically eliminated the fragmentation of our system to make better informed decisions because you know how it works now. It's horrible. In a big community like mine, about 30% of people's mental illnesses go to two or more stabilization units. They use different evaluation tools. They got different diagnosis uh, medications within data. We'll all stop with this system. It will also have an accountability feature so we're going to know which providers are doing a good job. So over time, this will have live data running. We'll have our homeless information data. We'll have our criminal justice, our Baker Act, and our mental health data. We make really smart decisions that will be able to warn us who's decompensating before they need hospitalization or an arrest. We do preventative care and get to them and help treat them before they get to you. The reality is we're starting to get a grasp on this problem. And our real hope is that we're finally going to do what the Supreme Court asked us to do when they ordered the institutionalization. Thank you very much.